So, Kyle. Yeah, Tyler. Been perusing LinkedIn lately. Oh, you have? And I noticed something with some of my uh, friends and connections on LinkedIn that are pastors. You know that a lot of pastors share a common skill on LinkedIn that they get endorsed for all the time? Pastors share a common skill that they get endorsed for all the time on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I have thoughts, but I don't know. Conversion rate optimization. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, guess, I guess they all want high conversion rates now. <laughs> Welcome to the Lionshare Podcast, for marketing leaders, by marketing leaders. Brought to you by Fidelitas Development. All right, everybody. Welcome to episode 16 of the Lionshare Marketing Podcast, our sweet 16th episode. So great to be back with my co-host, Kyle. How about dinner, a movie, and a five-star review, Weber? Kyle, great to be back with you. Yeah, it's great to be back with you too, Tyler. Great. So, Kyle, we have an awesome interview lined up today. Uh, Andrew Malcolm, the CMO over at Evernote. This is a tiny company. They've been around for yeah. a minute. Yeah. Uh, before that, he was over at uh, Skype heading up their marketing. So he's done a little bit, been around the block, as you might say, up in the Bay Area, working for some uh, technological unicorns. And before we get to his interview, Kyle, and, and so many great nuggets there, can't wait for our listeners to hear those. Uh, tell us, what's in the news? News team! Assemble! So today, Tyler Adweek put out an article called Brands Use Instagram Stories More Than Twice As Often As Snapchat. You don't say. (laughs) I I know you're going to love this one. Okay, so a new report was just released from L2, and the firm tracked 89 brands who have both an Instagram and a Snapchat account during July, finding that marketers posted... 1,347 Instagram stories compared to 614 Snapchat stories. Now, keep in mind, that was for 89 brands that had both accounts. So although both platforms have added tools, L2 makes the point that Instagram has integrated e-commerce handoff technology into stories, namely swipe up links leading to brand sites, linked influencer tags and checkout buttons that support brand efforts to move beyond engagement metrics and render their live video content shoppable. Also in the report, L2 had this to say, as Instagram becomes the mainstream choice for brand stories, Snapchat risks being nicheified, or or is it nicheified? I don't really ever know how to say those. Is it niche or niche? What I do you would say, say well... There's a special niche of people that might know the answer. Oh. And I can tell you that grammar is one of my niches that I like oh. to parlay into. And so I can tell you that both are acceptable in certain circumstances. Okay. That's great advice. I would love to hear what our audience thinks, if it's niche or niche. I think we should, we should have a poll somewhere. Maybe put it on Twitter. What do you think? Maybe. We're definitely not going to put it on Snapchat, though. <laughs> okay. So moving on, Tyler, not too long ago, we also posted an article giving a side-by-side platform comparison on the Fidelitas blog. And that blog is entitled Snapchat versus Instagram Stories, which platform is better for your business? We'll also put that in the show notes. And in that article, we break down the basics of each platform, the potential reach of each platform, content options for marketers and when they want to plan their content in advance, analytics for each of them, and also what options exist for driving traffic to your website. So Tyler, 
as the audience has probably picked up so far. You have a strong opinion about these two platforms, especially this last year. What are your thoughts on where brands need to focus their efforts? Yeah, I do, Kyle. And honestly, it's so frustrating to sit here and watch so-called marketing experts pound and pound and pound the Snapchat button because it's new, it's fresh, it's where the kids are, it's what's next, it's what's coming. I've got news for you that probably by the time most brands figure out how to even engage and monetize the Snapchat channel, all the kids that they're trying to reach are going to be on to the next one, which we actually just uh, discovered one yesterday called Discord, which is a gaming chat channel. Think basically Slack for gamers, essentially. So anyways, they're talking about that starting to replace Snapchat. So there's always going to be something that's new and fresh and next. And maybe it'll pan out and maybe it won't. But one thing I've always preached is that marketing leaders should channel their efforts into their most effective channels. And you can't argue with Instagram's reach because since it's owned by Facebook, they have all the data. They have more users and more accessible and frankly, a superior ad platform. I think that's one thing that a lot of marketers have struggled with on the Snapchat platform is monetizing it and being able to show any ROI from it. I mean, it's one thing to develop some great content. It's another thing to be able to drive traffic back to your site. So I think unless you've got a killer marketing influencer program going on Snapchat, you're better off just sticking to Instagram. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, and as marketers, measuring analytics is such a huge part of the game, right? So indeed, that that alone, for me, I want as many measurable results as I can get And so Instagram, they provide that. And as much as I hate to say that, I I would love to see a whole bunch of platforms out there. But if you're really going to focus on one, for most brands, I will say, there may be some exceptions to that rule, of course, and you need to figure out if your brand is that exception. But for most brands, Instagram is going to provide the analytics that you need to make better decisions about your marketing campaigns. So Instagram stories, I think, probably wins against Snapchat. Absolutely. Uh, Agreed wholeheartedly. Okay, Tyler. So let's get to our interview with Andrew Malcolm from Evernote. All right, everybody. I'm here with Andrew Malcolm from Evernote. Andrew is the chief marketing officer at Evernote. Before that, he spent time at Another little company you might have heard of known as Skype. Really grateful to have Andrew on the podcast today to share some of his marketing knowledge and insights. Andrew, welcome to the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Really appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Andrew, tell us more about how you came to be the CMO of Evernote. Well, I think that I wouldn't have predicted that I would end up in marketing even maybe 10 or 12 years ago. But I think what we've seen is a sort of sea change in what marketing means, especially at global SaaS businesses, where marketing is much more about using big data, using technology to communicate with people around the globe, realizing that most of these apps don't have the marketing budget to buy giant media time. And that really plays well to the strengths of people who have grown up with a whole lot of analytic backgrounds, maybe more so than the traditional creative side of things. And so I found myself working in companies where you have users in every country around the globe and you don't have the marketing budget to go reach them. So you have to be very, very creative and very, very analytical about how you go about communicating with them. And so that's what I've been lucky enough to get to spend my time doing is building marketing organizations that I describe as creatively analytic, where we find the perfect moment to speak to someone 
And a lot of times we turn our owned or earned media and frequently the product itself into the channel by which we reach them. So I think that that's a new change in the way we're going to think about marketing in the, the app world and one that I've been lucky enough to be on the forefront of. Awesome. And so you talk about finding the perfect moment to speak to someone. What does that look like? Well, there's been plenty of research over time, and I've seen many of my marketing brethren invest a lot of effort in copy testing, subject line testing, and testing the words that are out there. But we see over and over again that speaking to someone at the right moment, whether that's as they join your installed base or download your app, or right after they take an action, or right after something happens in their life even, is twice as important as speaking to them through the right channel, which means you know email or through a retargeting campaign or so forth. And that channel is twice as important as saying the right words. So in mm. the end, finding that perfect moment to speak to someone is eight times more powerful than saying the perfect words. So I tell all of our team, don't worry too much about copy testing anymore and start moment testing. For example, at Evernote, is it more effective to talk to someone about the power of capturing their ideas when they have just uploaded a document into Evernote and telling them about how they can comment and annotate that document, share those thoughts with other people forever? Or is it better to do that communication after they've closed the document? Because it's no longer, they're no longer trying to take an action at that moment and you're distracting them. And those two things can have incredibly different results in terms of how effective the exact same words might be depending on when you deliver that message. I love that. I love that concept of moment testing. Uh, hanging out with some of the guys at Google last week and we spoke at a conference and that was one of the key points was about finding the right moment and about engaging with people in, in the moment that they're in. And if you really have a good understanding of your target audience, that can be priceless for a brand, especially one like Evernote. And you brought up another good point there, Andrew. You were talking about trying to reach a lot of people with not a lot of budget comparatively. So again, when you think of global brands, obviously you don't have the budget at Evernote, which is still, you know, I don't want to call you guys a startup because you're very well established, but you still don't have the budget at a global brand like Evernote that you would at a Coke or a Pepsi. So how do you go about engaging an audience as wide and as deep as yours is without significant spend? Yeah, very much a challenge for us, for sure. We like to think we're kind of like an adolescent where we have a part-time job, but we don't have the same budget as mom and dad like to invest in those things. And so that's where, again, we think we can still be have the advantage of being small enough and scrappy enough to think differently about these things so that we can truly operate differently. And the most important thing that we've discovered is that people are going to spend well over half a billion hours in Evernote this year. Wow. And that's time that you can't buy in media terms, right? Because not only is it a vast amount, but it's also incredible contextually relevant and engaging moment where they're already thinking a little bit, at least about your product and how to use it. How do you use that to your advantage? So we've gone about turning our product or at least portions of our product into a highly targeted, highly trigger-based communication channel where we're not really trying to upsell you all the time, but we really want to talk to you about how you can get more value out of using Evernote more effectively. Because everybody has been fighting this conversion battle in the mobile SaaS world, when in fact, your problem is much more about engagement. Many of us know those stats that the median number of apps downloaded per user per month in the developed world right now is zero. Nobody's downloading apps anymore. We have all the ones that we really kind of want. 
even more problematically, if you do download one, there's like a 75% chance that it's uninstalled within a week and an 80% chance that it's only open once. So you better make the most of that time that you have because that's the one truly finite thing that users are constrained by. They're only 24 hours in a day. You have to give them a reason to spend that time in your app. And in order to give them that reason, they have to engage in the full functionality and experience the full value that you can deliver. So we use this channel inside of our product to explain all of the things that you can do with Evernote to make yourself more productive, to get more out of your day. Absolutely. That's awesome. And uh, I think you hit on a key point there for SaaS, which is it's all about engagement and making sure that you go beyond just the satisfaction of getting a download and make sure that you train your users on how to use the platform and get them more engaged with it. So great insight there, Andrew. Diving back into your past for a minute. You were also the senior director and head of marketing at Skype. What did you learn from managing a global platform that grew so quickly? Whereas I think Evernote is a little bit more the traditional model, right? Where you're growing steadily over time and it's steady, consistent growth. Skype took off pretty quickly. What was that like when you were there? Yeah, I would say a whirlwind is the only good way to describe what it feels like to all of a sudden go from a 400-person company to a quickly 1,200-person company to see your downloads go from, like, say, $250 million, which is nothing to sneeze at, to over a billion. And Skype had the unique position of you can't Skype alone, right? So you always have to find that other party to receive that communication. And I think it was a moment that, frankly, I didn't know that I would ever get to experience again. And I feel privileged that I get to do something kind of similar at Evernote and the impact that we can have, because it's never really occurred to a lot of people. But if you think about the number of users per employee that apps like Skype and Evernote are impacting, at times, you're talking about, you know, say, 600,000, a million users that every one of the employees at one of these apps is touching. And to have that scale of impact is just, it's inspiring and it's humbling at the same time. And frankly, it's very much pushes us, I think, to work a little bit harder because we do harbor an incredible responsibility to keep people's thoughts and memories safe, to help them do those most important things to them that are out there to ensure that they can communicate with anyone else on the planet for free. And that's not something we take lightly at all, right? And we have the distinct advantage to get to focus on one problem like that. And in the end, if you get it right, you can really have a global impact on the world. Yeah, it's it's funny just how far technology has come in the last 10 years in regards to that. And especially now with being able to communicate on a phone from anywhere, wouldn't have a face-to-face conversation with anyone around the world. Again, it's understandable why you guys had the rapid growth that it did. I am curious, Evernote, the brand is really self-explanatory. It does a nice job of implying what it is, even if you've never heard of it. Evernote, with that kind of name, you can really start to put two and two together. Do you have any uh, insight as to where the name Skype came from? Yes, there was a lot of discussion amongst the Estonian founders and the, the Scandinavian founders who were looking for a word that would connote the idea of the cloud without necessarily having to say those words specifically. And they also believed that they could find a sound or some sort of truly unique sounding word that would be able to convey those things, is my understanding of how they got there. And so there was the sky portion of it, 
And then there was a sharing portion. And then they also, obviously, because it was so international, there were a variety of other foreign language aspects that they thought about the sound and the intonation of those things. And it became, um, you know, almost unintentionally or without a ton of thought, Skype was like the second biggest tech breakaway brand in 2010, maybe, behind uh, Facebook on the Landor rankings. And we hadn't really thought that hard about it at that moment. but it was such a privilege to watch these people share the most intimate moments of their lives, right? Soldiers who were deployed to Afghanistan, watching their children being born over Skype, right? Those are moments that you're never going to be able to recreate anywhere. And in the end, all of these technologies, all of these apps, nobody comes to you because your feature is really that much better than somebody else's, right? They come to you because... It's what they can do with your technology that's so powerful. So what Evernote does is absolutely cool, right? But what people do with Evernote is so much cooler. We see companies that run entire research labs looking at vitamins for cancer patients run on Evernote, right? We see people pursuing their dreams of like just building their own trucking and shipping company in Australia run on Evernote. There's a Grammy award-winning record production studio in LA that runs on Evernote. And these moments are, are, again, what I think inspires us to not really think so much about ourselves, but much more think about what might we enable people to do. Because having one small contribution to all of these different things, I think, ladders up to more to us than would any single thing that we might be able to go out and do. That's great. So cool, Andrew. And uh, you're right. And again, that's kind of one of those priceless brand value ads for the users. You're talking about giving people their moments back. It's funny. We talk about optimizing for the moment, but even just uh, enabling the moment sometimes is critical. And I know Evernote's been a, uh, you know, I I don't want to teach you guys this horn too much, but I I mean, you guys are a huge game changer for me because my piss poor handwriting still looks like I never left the fifth grade and it's hardly legible. So (laughs) I remember when Evernote came out, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. I'm not an organized person to begin with to bring search functionality to my notes and they're all legible. It's like, oh, I'm pretty sure that's what uh, enabled me to survive as an entrepreneur. Otherwise, I think I would have put myself out of business with my disorganization. So thank you you from one of your avid users. We're excited to hear yet another success story of those things. You're in great, and I don't want to say exclusive company, but because I think that has the wrong intonation to the word, but of the people in the U.S. who make more than $100,000 as an individual, 50% of them are using Evernote or have an Evernote account, I should say. Wow. Talk and about keys to success. I, yeah. you know, not The money is the definition of success, but it's a proxy for many other things too, because if you look at people and how the level of education that they show, right? All of these people with graduate school educations, we over-index with them by like 200 plus percent at times. And those are things where you're like, look, these are the people who are having the big thoughts, who are thinking about the size of an impact that they can have. And again, I always think, I'm always so humbled when I step back and think about that I'm somehow have a small portion of contribution to them and the responsibility for being a custodian for Evernote and the Evernote brand and helping people get more out of what we're able to let them do. That's awesome. And uh, what kind of strategy went into converting to the paid model at Evernote? I know that uh, you had a rollout there. uh, What was it about six months ago? You you rolled out the paid version? So what what was that process like? Yeah. So we had never really 
deeply focused on the freemium model itself. We had always had a paid version, but really hadn't necessarily emphasized that aspect of the business. And we more or less got to the point where we had tried a variety of other things to let us monetize this impact that we had been having, but we hadn't had a ton of success on that side of stuff. And the truth was, we got to a moment where we said, we've done a great job of giving more than we take, but I think it's now very reasonable for us to have a value exchange with our users. And people think that the user base out there doesn't really want to pay for software. But in reality, I think what we see over and over again is if you deliver value and you stay committed to always giving more than you take, it's not unreasonable to ask people to have an exchange with you and to pay you for some of the value that you've created for them. And that was really the impetus that we got to. I mean, to be quite honest, the company, the other things the company had tried really put us in a tough spot where we were burning $5 million of cash a month. We needed to do some things to make sure that we fulfilled this promise of being Evernote, that we were ever present for people and that the things that you gave Evernote were going to be there forever. And this whole monetization move that we've made was part of that. And I'm really excited to tell you that in a short nine period, nine month time, we've doubled the number of paying users. We've passed 200 million registered users. We've moved three petabytes of data to the Google Cloud. We were cash flow positive in the second half of last year, and now we're investing hard in new product experiences for people. And all of these things were made possible by that mm. relationship we have with our users where they want to see us succeed as much as we want to see them succeed. And that's really what I think drove us to that point. That's awesome. And one really big takeaway in there for our listeners, you may want to rewind and listen to that answer Andrew just dropped again, to give more than you take as a brand. I don't care if you're a SaaS brand or if you're B2B or B2C, I think that's always sound advice and something that every brand should and could be striving for. You know, I think that's the difference between having the results like Evernote and some of the ones that don't make it is if you can figure out a way to give more than you take and become profitable at the same time, uh, that's kind of the secret sauce to success right there. Makes the marketing part easy. It certainly makes it fun. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. So obviously you had challenges along the way too, Andrew. It wasn't all just rainbows and unicorns. And uh, actually speaking of unicorns uh, and doing a little bit of uh, research here before our conversation today. It's funny, around two years ago, Evernote was referred to as the dead unicorn. So how did you overcome that? Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you hadn't been at Evernote very long when that status kind of got labeled on you guys in the media. So how did you overcome that DOA status that you inherited to help bring Evernote to where it is today? Yeah, I think that article came out about two weeks before I joined the company. Welcome aboard. Yeah, that was a fun moment. I would say that the biggest thing we did is remember why this company was started in the first place. Because what I spent a lot of time at the beginning doing was not only figuring out the monetization model, but also spending time with our founder, Stepan, who years and years ago had started the company because he believed that the world would be so inundated with data that they would need an extension of the brain to process all the things that come to him. And he just had personally experienced this because he had a bad short-term memory. And when you get back to the inspirational stories that come out of those types of conversations, it becomes really, I think, much more clear what our role in the world is around helping people spend more time doing the things that they really want to and achieving the things that they set out to. Because Stepan turns out in 2008 to get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And that's Mm. where he 
ends up kind of turning over running the company to other people. And at no, there are very few other diseases in the world where you truly need an extension of your brain. And that early poor short-term memory was one of the first symptoms of what he was experiencing. So this idea that we are still on the pursuit of building something that is that important, right? I think really, again, gets us all to show up to work in the morning, gets us to think about the impact that we can have on, on other people. Stepan believed that medical science would find a way to replace virtually any part of your body, right? You lose an arm, you get a prosthetic. You need a heart transplant, we can do that. We can even grow new livers for you, right, with pigs and so forth. But only technology can really start to replicate what's happening in your brain. And I don't think we'll make it in Stepan's lifetime, which is always a little bit sad, but we are so grateful for the things that he started to put us on this journey to what we've been able to achieve. And I think when we were in our darkest times, like those were the conversations that we came back to in order to remember why we were willing to fight so hard for these things. Because I do believe that we're contributing to millions of people every day, doing that important work to them. Wow. I got to say that really hits home as someone who has uh, family members dealing with short-term memory loss. It's like, yeah, that's awesome that you have a chance to kind of continue the legacy there. It's hard not to get like a little bit choked up because I feel like Stepan is very close. I feel very close to him. And he always says to me after our board meetings, he's always like, you know, this is my last baby, right? And I'm like, I know Stepan, I promise you, I will do my best for you. And, uh, and that story of like the connection to the brain and all those things is just, it's so incredible the way that these things sometimes end up working out. Um, sorry. All good. That was awesome. And thank you for sharing that. So what's different around, I know most of your background is in SaaS marketing, but what's different, Andrew, around marketing a SaaS product versus a traditional one or a B2B business, for example? Well, I guess on the B2B thing, maybe I am giving myself revisionist history, but I really don't think that it will be a difference between B2B and B2C when we look five to 10 years from now, at least not when it comes to apps that end users are engaged with. Because the whole bring your own device trend has entirely shifted into bring your own app now as well, right? You're seeing it with Dropbox, you're seeing it with Slack, you're seeing it with us as well. And end users are becoming more and more influential in the way that they choose what tools they use at work or at home. And more times than not, they want those to be the same thing. And I think that that power will only grow. Gardner says that by 2020, 90% of enterprise software will be bought outside of the CIO's budget. And I just truly believe that that is the world that we're headed towards. So fortunately for consumer guys like me, that means that we can end up playing in the B2B space pretty effectively as well if we can enable end users to make those decisions very seamlessly. So I think that that whole, is there a real distinction B2B, B2C is kind of being broken down. Now, what is different about marketing SaaS versus marketing other products? I don't know that it's starkly different, but I think the weighting of your attention to the purchase moment versus the ongoing relationship is probably just very different, right? Because, you know, you purchase a banana, like, okay, that relationship with that banana has a very finite amount of time until it's eaten, right? Yep. But the relationship with your SaaS app, and especially something like Evernote that people have deposited their thoughts and memories in for years is such an ongoing one that you have to realize that you have a very, very important role in maintaining that relationship and that every decision you have you make right now could have different ramifications 
years from now about the type of relationship you have with those users. And so I think you just have to be very, very cognizant about it any time erring toward doing the right thing for the users because you've built a relationship and that's the most precious asset you have. Mm, that's so true. So Andrew, going back to your time at Evernote, what do your internal and external marketing teams look like? Well, so we try to run a pretty lean team inside of Evernote. I mean, the whole company is only 320 plus people right now. So inside of marketing, we try to have a pretty small team that allows us to be very agile and dynamic. And I say agile very intentionally because in order to, I think, reflect the culture that we want of being very adaptable and be, being very capable of going to capture the opportunity that we see at any moment, the entire company runs a version of Scrum. So inside of marketing, we actually have these very cross-functional teams that we call pods, where you get a designer and a writer and a channel manager and a product marketing person all together at one time who can go out and take action, whether it's a campaign, whether it's a product launch, whether it's an influencer uh, program that we're trying to set up. And they can operate very independently without having to coordinate a bunch of work through a centralized design team because you have an assigned designer. And we full-on run a JIRA instance that has point estimations and user stories that our marketing team runs and our legal team and our analytics team, just like our product and engineering teams do as well. And we believe that for the most part, we only use external marketing teams like agencies if they can be a simple extension of that way of working. Um, And I think that Agile in this whole thinking around Scrum or Kanban or whatever you want to use is really just a very, very logical way to structure work to ensure that you're always working on the high priority stuff. We're really proud that we're able to reflect the engineering and tech side of the business does because it creates this cohesion and breaks down those barriers that often arise between you know, what an engineer might think of as a brand marketer and a brand marketer might think of as an engineer. Very cool. Very cool. And so did you set up the Scrum? system of uh, operations on your marketing team, or did you inherit it when you took over? So I did set it up. I was really surprised at the passion that the team had to do it. I mean, I started, when I started at Skype, I actually worked on an engineering ops team to introduce slightly more refined agile practices at that point. So I came from a world that believed deeply in agile and, uh, and we have always wanted to operate more like this. And when I got here, I encountered a team of people who just believed, as did I, that Agile is just a fundamentally more effective way to get stuff done. So although I was here for it and I very much encouraged it, the actual impetus came from a groundswell of people, which is exactly what Agile is supposed to be about, right? Self-organization and the team, reliance on the team. And uh, I will probably never forget the time where they showed up and they said, I think we should organize like this. I was like, of course we should. And in a matter of days, it was done. Wow, very cool. And do you have any tips for uh, marketing leaders that might be considering making a switch to that sort of uh, management or organizational style? I would say just go try and commit for 90 days. It's really not nearly as complicated as it frequently sounds. And a very small amount of training from another passionate, agile person can go a long, long way. I remember the very first backlog we ever wrote, it was just in a Google Sheet, right? It didn't need to be in Jira. It didn't need to be a perfectly articulated user story. 
And it just immediately created transparency because we posted it on a whiteboard. Everyone could see exactly what we were working on at any time and how hard we thought stuff was. So one of the biggest principles of Agile is iteration, right? Just start and just start iterating. And if you give yourself 90 days, I think you're going to find out that it's a more effective and a more pleasant way to work because the team gets to estimate the time to do things as opposed to being driven toward deadline. And that's empowerment that doesn't always come from traditional ways of working. Okay, great. And uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand at Evernote, you run your own P&L for the marketing department. What's that like and how does that impact your strategy? Well, so it's always funny to say who owns revenue inside of a SaaS business, right? Because if we don't all work, if we don't all work together awfully well, it's going to be pretty hard for us to deliver the results that the business expects. So when we look at the P&L, we look at it together with our CFO and our product and our sales teams all at the same time. And I think what we hope to do is similarly to within marketing where we set up cross-functional teams so we can do the same thing at the company level as well and think about that impact because that's the way real impact happens. I think at the beginning of lots of companies, you look for heroic individual effort. And by the time you even get to this sort of adolescent phase that I was talking about, you realize it's going to take a broader cross-functional team. Sure. Um, so I certainly spend the most time looking at the numbers and ensuring that we deliver every quarter, but I don't do it alone by any stretch. Okay. Awesome. Very cool. And uh, so Andrew, uh, on the other side, as you continue to steer the ship for Evernote's marketing moving forward, what keeps you up at night? I think the ongoing competition amongst the long tail of apps that are becoming hyper-specialized to certain things is just a macro trend that I don't know that we totally know how to think about. And part of me says it's creating an incredible opportunity to break down these app islands that are out there where users, especially sort of knowledge workers, are spending two and a half hours searching for stuff every day. But you can't think that's because the search itself sucks. It's just because there are too many places to search. Sure. And so while I worry intensely about the competition that says, oh, we're just going to build a super skinny one single purpose app, I think that if we react to that intelligently and show that we can unify all of the different tools that people are asked to use in a single day with a common interface, I think that becomes a massive opportunity for established apps. But what keeps me up is exactly how we could make that happen because that's the next evolution of how we think about ourselves definitely that's a great transition into my next question for you which is what's next for evernote what are your goals from a marketing standpoint where are you guys trying to head as we uh sunset into the end of 2017 as hard as that is to say already yeah it is hard to believe I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old and the best advice I've gotten as a parent is that the days are long and the years are short and yep. uh, nothing could be truer than that as a parent and as a, as a marketing person inside of a fast-moving technology company. I think the next thing for Evernote, if I had to summarize it best, is we've been focused on helping people live more organized lives as individuals, but nothing as we were saying before, the most important things get accomplished when you're working with other people. And organizing a team, organizing a group of people 
is a challenge that is exponentially harder. So for us, we're starting to think not just about how do we help people like Tyler lead more organized lives, but how do we help Tyler's entire team lead an organized, a more organized operation? And I'm pretty excited about some of the uh, the things that we're going to be building to make that possible over the next six to nine months that builds upon stuff that we have already done in the land of artificial intelligence and machine learning that builds upon the success that we've seen people have and it helps us break down some of those app islands. Sure. And so that said, obviously, AI is at the forefront of everyone's minds right now, especially with uh, everything with Facebook having to shut down their AI program for creating its own language recently and uh, everything else that's uh, going on on that front. How do you see AI impacting Evernote in the future? I mean, we're very, very cautious because of things like what happened with Facebook um, and because we hold some of people's most precious data. So we have been very, very careful as we've waded into some of these new technologies and how they work. I think that there are two things that are necessary in order to make AI into something real. And I think, frankly, it's probably much more about machine learning right now than true AI. And I think that the first aspect of that is the actual algorithms themselves and the way that the technology works. But Google has almost leveled the playing field in that space, right? Because they give away all of that as a platform on sure. GDP. Yep. The second part of, of making machine learning and AI really effective, though, is having data. And with the billions of notes that we have, we have a very unique corpus of data that we can think about. And we can think about how we can use. But we only do that when somebody gives us permission. We only do that when in a very experimental state with users who have opted into being part of some of the things that we're working on. And I think this is one of those spaces where not everybody starts with a perfect use case. But we have seen some already where if somebody is taking a sales note, right, and you need to go populate salesforce.com afterward, well, all of the data exists in an unstructured format inside of a note. And then you go populate drop-down menus inside of Salesforce. Well, how can we not make that automated, right? That's one of the actually easier machine learning use cases that one could come up with. Those sure. are the types of things that we're, we're starting with that are super low-hanging fruit. And then I think we'll progress to much more complicated things from there. But, uh, but there are lots of things that you can do when you have as much unstructured data as Evernote does. Yeah, I think my biz dev director's ears are ringing right now, just uh, thinking about the thought of not having to manually enter all those leads from his notes. So that would be a uh, nice feature to have in the future for sure. Well, give us a little bit of time. Two weeks? You want to make that promise <laughs> on the record? Breaking uh, news on the yeah. Lineshare Marketing Podcast? I don't think the marketing guy is allowed to commit to certain definitions of done from the engineers in the Scrum framework. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? It's our job to make promises and it's everyone else's job to make sure it actually happens. <laughs> At least another couple weeks inside of the company. Yeah. yeah, fair, fair. Solid points, Andrew. And uh, thinking more at large outside of Evernote and more into marketing at large, what do you think is next for marketing? Well, I guess the second trend, I think, beyond that whole BYOA, B2B, B2C becoming blended is this idea that the people that are influencing the decisions 
these days are incredibly different, right? I think we all know that millennials listen to different sources to decide what they use and what products they use that are out there. And I think that that is probably the next big thing that we want to think about beyond how you use the data at your disposal to find the perfect moment. It's going to be, how do you build that set of influencers because they're truly passionate about your product, not because they are being paid to be a channel partner or a distributor for you. And I think that that whole world, especially for apps like Evernote, has the potential to be so powerful because when people share their stories, I just don't think there's any better way to, to tell the overall story of Evernote than for people to tell their own Evernote story. So every time people ask me, you know, why do you love Evernote so much? I tell them, about how I started on my birthday in 2011, when my present to myself was that I was gonna be a better manager. I was gonna take one-to-one notes and I was gonna make sure I had action items for meetings and agendas. And no doubt Evernote helped me an incredible amount. For about 10 months, the team got more done, I felt more organized, that was all great. And then my dad died. And all of a sudden, all of the things that I needed to manage with legal documents and with his medical records, And then ultimately his eulogy were in Evernote as well. And I don't think there are a lot of things that can blend your personal and professional lives as effectively as some of the apps like that. Because that's the moment that you really start to live what I have come to call the Evernote way of life, where I don't have to worry about searching a bunch of places. I know that everything's in Evernote now, the kid's sonogram, as well as our marketing strategy. And I think that the more we think about lives in that blended way, the more we think about the people as opposed to a persona, the more effective we're going to be as marketers. And then it's a matter of reaching people to tell them those stories correctly. Love it. Yeah. And so many great uses for Evernote. It's funny. I was looking, I was curious when I started using Evernote for the first time and my first note is from October, 2010. So, and at that point I started using it pretty religiously and it's just, if, if you ever do that, but you ever just click the uh, the sort by tab and sort by updated, but in inverse order. So you see the oldest stuff first. And just to go back and look at what we were taking notes about six, seven years ago and whether or not it's even relevant or what our thoughts were at the time. It's, it's almost like a time capsule right there at our fingertips. It is. I describe it as I go to Netflix to be entertained. I go to Facebook to connect. Facebook timeline always gets me by showing that ex-girlfriend when my wife is sitting right there, right? From like 10 years ago. But in Evernote, I just go back to what I was thinking 10 years ago, and that's okay by me. That's got to be a uh, software product waiting to be developed is something that goes through and scrubs old significant other photos (laughs) when you get into a new relationship. There's a little project out there for any developers that might be listening to this. So, Andrew, I really want to be respectful of your time. And again, can't thank you enough for coming on and hanging out with us today. One last question for you. We ask all of our guests here on the Lionshare Marketing Podcast, which is if you could give one last piece of advice or one big takeaway, and you've given so many great nuggets already, but one key takeaway for our marketing leaders listening today, what would that be? I think uh, for about the first 10 or 15 years of my career, everybody told me to build a network and I never had any idea why. I knew I was supposed to. And so I did because I'm a people pleaser, right? But some point last year, I walked into Evernote and realized that I was the only person in the building who understood what my job was. And I both felt incredibly alone 
and incredibly grateful that I had spent all of those years making sure that I had a network of other people that I could draw upon. Because you start and you're an analyst, right? And there are lots of other analysts in your class. And you can talk to them about how much it sucks to be an analyst and talk sure. about how to solve those problems. But now I have to go outside of my organization to find another CMO. And you still need to have a thought partner. You still need to commiserate just as much as you did when you were an analyst. You just can't do that with anybody else that's necessarily in the building. So my best advice is keep finding those people that you feel a personal connection with because that will get you through the rough times. It will make the good times even better to celebrate with. Sound advice. And so much truth to that. I just uh, was speaking with one of our interns here at Fidelitas about that two weeks ago as he wrapped up his uh, summer internship with us was talking about the importance of building relations. I know one guy actually, uh, I don't know if you heard this story or not, Andrew, he went around from Ivy League school to Ivy League school without ever signing up for school or acquiring debt and just audited the classes. And then he would bartend everywhere he went. So he made all sorts of friends bartending. And so he built up a relationship and got an education. He doesn't have the diploma, but he also doesn't have the six figures of debt. I'd be interested to see what he ended up doing with himself. I do love those stories. It's always an interesting question of what is the real value of the education? Is it the learning or is it the diploma? So maybe he can tell us. Absolutely. Hey, come to think of it, if anyone knows uh, where that guy is, let me know. I'd love to have him on a podcast. But uh, anyways, uh, Andrew, thanks again so much for your time. Uh, appreciate having you on the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. And if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to find you? You can always find me at malk at evernote.com or I will follow and accept anybody on LinkedIn to stay in touch. I'm a big fan of sharing and, uh, and helping everybody succeed. So don't hesitate to reach out. That's awesome. Andrew, thanks again. Thank you, Tyler. Talk to you guys real soon. Thank you. Okay, so we just like to say thanks again to Andrew Malcolm for coming on to the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. If you'd like the show notes, you can head on over to lionsharepodcast.com slash 16. That's lionsharepodcast.com slash 16. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already, and please feel free to leave us a review. And stay tuned for episode 17. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to the Lion Share Podcast. Brought to you by Fidelitas Development, your marketing partner for better brand loyalty.